And we're in the book, uh, we're going through the, the book of Acts. In fact, we're taking the book of Acts and we're splitting up into three major sections. Part one is chapters one through nine. And every week we're just going to hit a chapter and we're going to go through that. That's the first section we're calling a new kingdom come. Because it's God's kingdom. When Jesus rose again and he, uh, he has set the, the apostles aside, and about that last week in, in chapter one. Now we're moving on into chapter two and we're going to find out we get a new spirit. And there's power in this spirit, and this is the ability that this new spirit offers us is the ability to not be afraid of this world and not be discouraged when we have hiccups and we have things that come against us. Now, the, the style that we're going to be going through this message, it is an exegetical message. We're going to be going through the Bible. What that means is we're looking at the Bible. We're looking what it says to us. Uh, because you don't want to be here all afternoon, we're just going to give a review we're going to, of, of the chapter. Then we're going to, so we're going to kind of review what's happening in chapter 2. Then we're going to focus in on a couple of verses, and then we're going to look at the application for us. And so that's how it works. Now, we always want to start every uh, message with a Bible memory verse because disciples of Jesus know the Word. And our discipleship, our, our memory verse for this series, I, I know I'm making it easy for you guys, I'm giving you one per series, not the week this week or this time, is going to be what is we know as the Great Commission, the Acts version, which uh, is in there where Jesus tells us this is, what, this is the mission that we are on. And we'll be coming back to this every week, and there's great application in it. So here we go. Just say it along with me, and then we'll, we'll set it to our hearts. And it says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Sounds, let's get into the Word. If you have a Bible, please turn it to Acts chapter 2. It's going to be on page 758 if you have one of our Bibles. So here we are, Acts 2. Now, it just so happens Acts 2 happens right after Acts chapter 1. That's how it works, right? So to review, let's remind. Acts chapter 1, Jesus had ascended, and he told his disciples, go to Jerusalem. This is important. He tells them to go to Jerusalem. He didn't tell them to go to Capernaum. He didn't tell them to go to Galilee, which was their hometown, where they had houses and things like that. He told them to go to Jerusalem, where things were still pretty volatile. Right? It was still a hostile environment. There was a reason he told them. He didn't tell them why to go to Jerusalem. He just said, go to Jerusalem, and he told them, wait there. Wait, and he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So that's what the disciples are doing. They're, they're, they're in Jerusalem, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now, they've been waiting now for about a week. How do we know that? Well, we know that from the beginning of Acts that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he was with them for 40 days, right? And in Acts chapter 1, we see him ascend. So that's the end of the 40 days. What, and Jesus was, uh, he was executed on Passover, right? So that had been before the 40 days, right? Three days before that, okay? And what we find in this passage was there was a holiday coming up in the Jewish people called Pentecost, which sounds maybe like, you know, depends with five, it means 50. It was a celebration of the 50 days, also known as a, the celebration of weeks. It was a Jewish holiday that happened seven weeks and a day after Passover. And so it's uh, 49 plus 1, 50, uh, 50 days. And what this celebration was all about was it was a celebration of the harvest. See, at the beginning, they had the, the very beginning, they had this, this festival where they, at the beginning of the harvest, where they give God their first fruits, and now this would give them enough time to have the full harvest, and now they have a big party, right? And so uh, it was a big celebration that was going to happen. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem, and here's why there were a lot of people in Jerusalem here at Pentecost. It's because traveling, as it is today, but even more so back then, was expensive, and so a lot of Jews, they would make maybe one time in their life a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. And when are they going to go to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage? If you only had the money to travel there once in your life, right, maybe twice, I mean, but you're going to go over the holiest the holiday season. That's when you're going to go. So they would come to Jerusalem from all over the world, speaking all these other languages and the countries that they live in, and they would get on their boats, and they would get on these dangerous roads, and they would make this perilous long journey, and they would show up in Jerusalem for Passover. So they could celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It was a big deal. And so since they were going to make that journey stay through Pentecost, right? So they get there for Passover. Usually they get there like a week or two early, make sure they got their lamb and everything like that. They have their place. Then they would stay all the way through Pentecost. And then after Pentecost, there'd be this big party, this big celebration. And after that, then, then they would kind of pack up their stuff and they would go back all throughout the four corners of the earth. They would go back to their home countries, their home communities. And that's where they would do. So, 
So Jerusalem was packed. And it wasn't just packed with anybody. It was for these, these uh, tourists that came there for this thing, these, these uh, pilgrims on, on a pilgrimage, right? And these particular Jews who came to Jerusalem during this time, they came on the right year, right? They, they were there, that these, these multitudes of people who came in Jerusalem from all over the world, they were there and they would have seen the, the triumphal entry. When Jesus, the Messiah, had come back, they thought, well, we picked the right year to come to Jerusalem on this. The Messiah showed up. I mean, what are the odds? And they did it. So they got to see that. They were part of this. Many of them were. And they saw Jesus coming in and riding and on, on Palm Sunday. And, and they would probably, a lot of them, they were singing Hosanna. And they were like, oh, this is amazing. And they were also there when Jesus was doing miracles that last week in the temple. Because where were the, these, uh, these religious tourists be? The temple. So they would be there. They would have seen all kinds of miracles that have taken place. They would have seen the Messiah do these things. And then, they, at that week, they also would have seen the, everything turn against Jesus. They would have seen Jesus being taken before uh, the, the, the high priest. They would have seen Jesus be whipped, and they would have seen Jesus in his trial before Pilate. They may have very well, a lot of them, been in the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They would have been part of this. They also, three days later, would have been uh, part of the people that have been eyewitness to the resurrection. I mean, they were tourists. They had no work to go to that day. They could have gone to the tomb and checked it out. I mean, it kind of was the talk of the town when somebody raises from the dead, especially somebody as well-known as Jesus. And so they were there. In fact, Jesus was in Jerusalem for 40 days, appeared amongst them and walked around that area. There's very likely some of them even saw him. It's pretty amazing. And they were part of this. This, this group of people that are in the city at Pentecost wondering, what does this all mean? Because I'm sure they had questions. And they're there, and they would have been back with family or in their hotels and all that kind of stuff. But on Pentecost morning, they would come out to start celebrating. So when everybody's like this one last hurrah, everybody gets back out. And we find on that morning, on Pentecost morning, the disciples are waiting in this upper room. They've been there for a week, waiting, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up. And we're going to read about that, what it happens. And it was pretty dramatic. And the Holy Spirit shows up, and then He gifts them with the absolute perfect gift. He gives them the ability to go and speak in languages they've never studied. That's called the gift of tongues. And it makes sense why he gave them that gift, because there was people from all over the world. And he sent them out into the street, and they shared the gospel with people who would then, uh, we have Peter giving this amazing sermon. And God brought conviction into the hearts of, of many thousand and three thousand people uh, these that were there became believers that day. And then this, this church that was born all of a sudden then becomes a community. And they start meeting together and they start fellowship together. They start caring for one another. They start studying the word together. And, and everything, it, the, the church begins this day with a bang. It's an amazing story. So that's the story of this uh, thing. Now um, let's go into the new spirit that we get. In the new kingdom, God gave us a new mission, but he also gave us a new spirit Actually, he gives us three, and I will talk about that. But let's talk about the first one that is most obvious that we, we get in this chapter, and it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read um, the first four verses there. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's the apostles. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that appeared and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then you get to read what they do next. It's a pretty powerful thing. But the Holy Spirit shows up. And... Uh, they didn't probably expect how. They didn't know how God was going to do this. And, and of course, God wondering, hey, did we get the Holy Spirit? Right? Uh, they're sitting inside, and it said it sounded like wind. It didn't say it was windy. It said it sounded like a big wind. And they're inside, and they're like, ooh, something's up. Right? And all of a sudden, flame appears, like a big flame, and it starts dividing up 
and they're sitting there watching this because how could you ignore it at this point? God has got their attention. And then the flame, these little tongues of flame, start moving around, and one of them starts coming closer to each of the apostles, which I'm sure are like, what's going to happen? And then, rest right over their head, and all of a sudden, they're filled with God's Holy Spirit, and they have ability to speak in all kinds of languages. Just amazing. Now, not only would this have been a very profound moment in their life, they would have remembered this, that God showed them physically, audibly, they felt it, right? There's all these different things that they had the gift of the Holy Spirit, so they wouldn't mistake. They absolutely have this, but, uh, but how the Holy Spirit worked may have not have been what they expected, but they knew exactly what the Holy Spirit was supposed to do, at least a lot of it, because Jesus had told them to wait for this gift that she had told them about, the Holy Spirit. And he tells them about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. He goes, Jesus gives a really great dissertation on who the Holy Spirit is, and he explains to them what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. So they had an idea to expect uh, some of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit, so when he came, they knew to welcome him. And here's some things that they learned about the Holy Spirit. Just briefly, uh, Jesus, when he begins talking about the Holy Spirit in John 14, he says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because the world neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I mean, even this passage, there's so many things that they would already get from the Holy Spirit. Just three that are easy, right? First thing they would know is the Holy Spirit is permanent. Right, because he says there, he says that he will ask the Father, he'll get another advocate to help you and be with you. How long? Forever. Now that's important because Jesus had told them, I am going to go back to the Father. I'm not going to be with you right here like this forever. Now he does say, I am with you always in the Holy Spirit. He's God. But the ministry of Jesus, Jesus wasn't always physically with the apostles. I mean, there were times where Jesus would stay back and he'd tell the apostles to go on ahead. There was times that Jesus sent them on to things and Jesus wasn't with them, right? There were times that Jesus wasn't present with them. But he says it's going to be different with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always be with you. He's not leaving. His ministry doesn't end. Now, this is a cool thing for us that are believers because um, forever is a long time. It's longer than our lifespan. Even those of us that are old, we can't say that we're that old yet, right? Which means that the Holy Spirit hasn't run out on you yet. He's with you. He's with us in this life, and then we continue to experience His presence in the next life, which is amazing, which gives us great comfort as we cross through death, right? The Holy Spirit is with us. God is with us every step of the way. But He's with us in life as well. It's permanent. It's not going to go anywhere. Holy Spirit, once He shows up, there's not a new dispensation. There's not a new time that the Holy Spirit is now gone from us. The Holy Spirit will always be with us. The second thing we notice about the Holy Spirit is that He's present. Look what he says in those bottom two lines. He says, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you, right? So one of the things about the Holy Spirit is that he's going to be a present. He's not, he's not just in this world. He's going to be physically present with us. And I like how Jesus shows this to He says, you know him. The disciples are probably like, what do you mean I know him? Well, Jesus says, well, he's already with you because he's with you. So the Holy Spirit was already present in the world right? They already knew that God was, was everywhere. I mean, Jonah figured that out when he tried to run away from God. I mean, the Jews understood this, that God was present. The Holy Spirit's already been present. He's been with us. And so he's like, this is not new. This is God until you know him. But here's the part that is amazing. He says, and will be. At the time where he said this, the Holy Spirit wasn't yet inside of, of believers, He says, and will be in you. This is an amazing promise because in the Old Covenant, you read the Old Testament, you're never going to find the Holy Spirit doesn't go inside of a person. The Holy Spirit would rest upon some, but he says anoint them. It's kind of like putting a crown on or a robe, right? Would would cover the prophets, the kings, could anoint them and give them abilities and all that kind of stuff. But the Holy Spirit never made a dwelling place inside of a person. In fact, in in the Old Testament, the only place that we find the Holy Spirit really resting or making on this earth was a place called the Holy of Holies. That was in the temple or the tabernacle. It was, it was a place that was set apart. That's why it's called holy. It means set apart. It was set apart so much it was holy and then holy again. It was a place that God's presence dwelt. That's what made the holy of holies holy. Does that make sense? And, what, and, and because it was holy, it means that people couldn't be there. It wasn't a common place, right? The holy of holies had to be kept separate from people because we're sinful, right? We're, we're broken. And so so God wanted to be in this world, and he had a place that he was, this holy place where his spirit dwelled, and it was so amazing that people couldn't get there. And 
Well, there was one guy who could go there once a year, and he had to come with the sacrifice of people. He was a high priest. And in order to be able to enter the Holy of Holies, he couldn't just go whenever he wanted to. It was once a year. And before he went in, he had to go all these ritual sacrifices. He had to do all these things to make sure that he was purified. So when he walked into that place, he wouldn't get obliterated. And they would tie bells around his ankles and, and, and wasn't clean, um, and he died. They could just drag him out so nobody else would go. I mean, that's how holy that place was. God was separate from people. And then Jesus says something crazy about the Holy Spirit. It says, yeah, that Holy Spirit who you can't approach is going to dwell within you. We've been with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit for two millennia now. I think as believers, we take it for granted. But remember, there were thousands of years and generations of people who couldn't approach the Holy Spirit, otherwise with just fear and trembling. He was kept behind a, a big, thick curtain. The separation was, was physical. It was awe-inspiring. It was amazing. It was impenetrable. And now, the Holy Spirit dwells. In fact, other places in the New Testament says that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. How did God do that? Because what made the Holy Spirit that place that the, the holy of holies holy is because people couldn't get there because we would mess it up, right? How is it now that this Holy Spirit would be present? Well, we would have to be purified, which is why it didn't happen in the Old Testament, because the sins of all people, they were being rolled up, but they hadn't been paid for. There was like a long tally of people that God said, I'll save you by grace through faith, but the bill hasn't been paid yet. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sins, all people, all time. Now there was no more debt. There was, there was no more, that, that there was, we could be purified, forgiven. And once we have been cleansed, once we've been forgiven, the Holy Spirit can now dwell within us. Wow. Now, I don't know if these guys had that understanding of all of that depth yet, but they did know this, that the Holy Spirit somehow miraculously was going to rest within them, was going to live inside of them, be a real, physical, present reality. And what an amazing thing is, it's one thing to know that God is with us, around us. It's an entirely different thing than that God is in me. Because wherever I am, God is in that. Whatever I experience now, God is in that. I'm not God, but God is certainly within me. He is there. He knows what I feel. He knows what I think. He knows what I'm going through, and He empowers whatever He needs to empower. I am never outnumbered, and I'm never outgunned because God is with me. How amazing is that? Third thing to understand is that Holy Spirit, too, is also a proof of faith. Look what he says. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you. He didn't say, I'll give everybody. I will give you. He's a disciple. I'm going to give you this gift. You're going to have this. This is a very special thing. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you and in you. Do you want to know if you're really following the Messiah? You want to be following Jesus? One of the evidences it tells us in the New Testament is that we have the Holy Spirit, that God is with us. He begins to transform. The New Testament says the Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal of our redemption. He's what keeps us. I think it's an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit is this, is a proof of faith. Now, there's other things that, that we find in that passage. In fact, in the rest of the New uh, Testament, we find a lot about, um, about the Holy Spirit. But even in just Acts, uh, John, John chapter uh, 14 through 16, there's uh, a couple things that we find about the Holy Spirit in particular. And one of them is that He's going to empower the church. And that's really the main thing that I think we need to get from today. It's the Holy Spirit's job, or one of the things He's going to do, one of the things that He does work is that He empowers the church. In John 14 through 16, there's a lot of ways that He says He does that. For example, He says He's going to, he's going to uh, ensure the accuracy of the gospel and Scripture. He says that God's going to give the Holy Spirit to bring to mind everything perfectly, as remember, remind the apostles what Jesus did. So that's why the Gospels were written, some of them 20, 30 years after the events, uh, and yet they're perfectly accurate because the Holy Spirit was there saying, remember, <laughs> write it down, write, make sure that it's correct. That empowers the church. Isn't it helpful to know that the Bible is more than just a, a book from old religious guys and their thoughts? It's not foul. It's inspired by God itself. Doesn't that give you power to know that you don't have to wonder what in Scripture is true and what is not? It's true and it's helpful. That empowers us. That's big. It also said the Holy Spirit would prepare hearts to receive the gospel. It said that the Holy Spirit, in, in those chapters there, it said, would come and convict the world of sin, of judgment, of righteousness. Right? That's not our job. I'm so happy that's not my job. The Holy Spirit's going to do this. He's going to convict the world. That He's preparing the ground, the soil for the gospel. The Holy Spirit's doing that in advance for us, which is one of the reasons why He's so necessary in 
evangelism. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. Another thing it's going to do is that the Holy Spirit would guide and empower the church by guiding the the church and the believers in truth. Even here it says, he's the spirit of truth. He is actually real. And he's going to help us understand reality as it is so we can live our life according to what is true and stop guessing what is morally good or what should I do or how should I act. He's going to actually tell us that is an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit will guide us and transform us. Well, one other thing we find is not in those chapters, but we find in the rest of the New Testament other places. The Holy Spirit also gifts the church. Another way he empowers the church is by gifting the church. He gives the church different positions, people, like uh, there's prophets, there's apostles, there's pastors, there's teachers, there's all kinds of things. Every one of you is a gift to the church, and, and the Holy Spirit gifted the church with you. That's one of the things that he does. But he also gifts each believer with some type of what they call a spiritual gift. Some people get more than one. Some people have one. Doesn't, it's not their thing, but uh, like we don't get to choose. He gifts us just like you don't get to pick your birthday present you need. But he gifts you with the perfect gift. And so that gift is meant to be used. It's how he empowers the church. So, so we had the gift of the Holy Spirit. The next new spirit that we get is the spirit of grace. And we see that uh, this is important for us uh, and we'll talk about it in a bit of why, but the spirit of grace is fundamental to who we are as Christ's followers. And we see that in, uh, at the end of, uh, of Peter's sermon. And, and so if you look there in verse 36, you're going to kind of see the wrap-up when Peter started to wrap up his sermon. And this is how Peter, after he talks to the people and basically reminds them of everything that they saw, that they were, they were eyewitnesses of and they were partakers of basically the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says to this, the people who were there, um, and verse, helpful if I'm in the right chapter, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So in summary, what he says to them, all of y'all can be sure of this thing, that Jesus was Messiah and you killed him which is bad news, right? Because you're you, you done messed up when you kill God, right? You went to Jerusalem to celebrate religious things. You celebrate God to, to show your faith. And at the end of the week, you killed God. And so that's like, what do you do then, right? And so the people, they respond and they, they say this uh, after that. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They knew it was true. They were eyewitnesses. This wasn't hearsay for them. They were there. They were the ones yelling, crucify him. They were there. And they're cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Other uh, versions say, what must we do to be saved? But they're like, we are in trouble. Right? We, we thought we were doing what was right. And it turned out to be very, very wrong. And now we're in trouble. Now, most every religion and human nature would tell you something different than what the apostles said. They would say this, well, when you really mess up, right, you buy God flowers, right? At least for husbands, do you understand this? Like when you really mess up and you go home, what are you going to do? You can't make it right, you buy your wife flowers. And I think people, we do that too with God. We buy him flowers. That's, that's what we, it's the religious side of what they would say is, how do you buy God flowers? Well, you, you make sacrifice for him, right? You, you, you make penance. You, you torture yourself. You sacrifice something of importance, of value. You show God you, how much you're going to make yourself suffer because you were just so naughty and so bad. And hopefully, that'll buy God off. Or you give to God enough to, to make him so he's not mad at you anymore. He's like, oh, okay, I guess you're all right. That's what religion is. Do you understand that? That's why there's temples there where people bring bananas and fruit and they sacrifice things like animals and even their children in front of, right? There, there's a reason for that. They're trying to buy God off. They're not saying what I did was right. They're just saying, God, please don't look at what I did that's wrong. Um, I hope this makes you happy with me again. That's not grace. That's trying to buy God's favor. And how much do you have to sacrifice when you actually murder God? So I imagine they were expecting, what must we do to be saved? And I imagine that the apostle would be like, well, man, we just did that, uh, that, that big uh, celebration, you know, 40 or 50 days ago where, you know, we sacrificed something very expensive, you know, and there was all this blood. And that was before you made this big mistake. It's going to be way worse. I mean, you might as well just mortgage your life. And then, even then, wouldn't you be happy to know that there was a way, even at that? But that's not grace. And I want you to see what the apostles told the disciples here. Because he didn't say, Peter didn't say, 
uh, Peter replied, uh, you're going to have to suffer now really bad. No, this is what he said. After he said, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the Jesus, in name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, that's too easy. Repent, be baptized. Repent means uh, turn the way that you were living. You know, you made some bad choices because you were following your own moral compass. And your moral compass, I I tell you that the people that were there yelling crucify him were thinking in their heart and their mind that they were keeping the faith pure, that they were standing up for God. And in that zeal, they end up killing God. Their compass was broken. The first thing that he says to do is repent, get a different compass. That is not pain. I don't know if you have ever been out hiking or whatever, and you had a broken compass, and you're like, can't figure out what you're doing? And then somebody walks up and says, hey, your compass is on backwards. Here, use mine, right? And you say, okay, I'm going to use yours. It works. Uh, that's not suffering. That's, that's, that's a good news, isn't it? And he gives the apostles, he, he says, repent. That's what Peter says. Stop following your own way because it's not leading you right. Recognize it in this change. Let's follow Jesus. Follow God's plan. Repent. Make them like your heart. Now, the second thing he tells them to do is be baptized. And for the Jews, this, again, is grace. This is not a work. It's not a heavy thing. It's not magic. It wasn't any type of hardship on them. Being baptized is not something you can do to yourself. It's something that you allow to be done to you. It's an amazing gift. And, and understand, he's speaking to Jewish people. So understand, when he says be baptized, what were they thinking? What is baptism? It's an it was. The first thing it was, like uh, John the Baptist came in. He was baptizing people. The, and what was he doing? It was a baptism of repentance. It's a sign of commitment. When they were baptized, they would say, I, as a nation, is preparing their hearts. They were saying, you know what? I've been living for me. I've been doing things for me the wrong way. And now I'm committing wholeheartedly to what God has. That's repentance. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rep- it's a baptism of repentance. I'm now committed to living for God. And so they understood repentance is one of the reasons that you were, you were immersed because you're saying my entire life, all of me is now committed. I am now set, all of me, on the ways of God. The next thing they understood, uh, baptism to be, was a, a spiritual uh, uh, a washing, right? You have this thing where baptism was this, uh, uh, where the high priest, before he could even go into the Holy of Holies, one of the things he had to do was to be baptized. He would go in, it was a ritual washing. And as he was washed, uh, he would be, it would be a symbol of, of all of his sins being washed off of him by the grace of God. So he wouldn't carry with him all of his dirtiness into the Holy of Holies. He was allowing God to purify him. They understood this. It's one of the reasons that they were submerged in water, because that's how you take a bath. You get all of you, you get all of it off. As they understood this, this was an idea of being baptized, that God was going to purify them of this horrendous sin of killing him. And the other thing that was understanding, the Jewish understanding of baptism was it was a, it was a rebirth for them. If, if there was a Gentile that wanted to become a Jew, one of the things that they would often do is this, that they would baptize them. If they would die to their old Jewish self and they would be reborn into the Jewish community, now they were Jewish. They were Gentile before and they died to that, now they're fully Jew. Just as like they were born into it, now this is their new identity. Well, though all of those, we find those same symbols and meanings in the New Testament for baptism. Yeah. It's because it was, exi- it, was, it was an expression of faith. It was saying to God, I'm in. I'm now committing myself publicly to live for you. It was a symbol again saying, God, I'm going to allow you to wash away my sins and not count them against me. It was a symbol of God saying, I'm dying to my old self, that dead way of living that caused me to kill you, and I'm going to live a new life for you and in you. That's what it was. It was an expression of of grace and of faith. It was an amazing thing. That's all he told him to do. He didn't say be baptized and now go you know, make yourself miserable. He said, what must we do to be saved? Repent, be baptized. There is grace for you, and that has not changed. And the amazing thing is, is that the people responded to this. But I want you to hear, before we hear the resident, that your sins will be forgiven, God will actually forgive you of this. You don't even have to go get another bull and have it executed. You, you can just be forgiven. You just believe it, trust it, repent, be baptized, it's you. But then look what it says on there uh, in uh, verse 30, uh, 38. Repent, be baptized, everyone, in the name of the Father, or name of Jesus Christ, in forgiveness of sins, and you will receive, get this, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was enough to have them be forgiven. That's more than enough, right? 
But then the gospel goes one step further and says this, what the prophets of old and the kings of the past could not enjoy, what the apostles, what you see now, which they have, the Holy Spirit indwelling, these are the apostles, these are the disciples, they've walked with Jesus for three years, right? These are the guys that already had sacrificed a lot from, they get this gift, but no, it, this, is, this is the gospel that said, listen, not only can you be forgiven, but God will also gift you with his presence, with his Holy Spirit. God himself will make you into a temple. Like You messed up, and instead of like, destroying you, God is going to build you up into something amazing and pure. That's, what, that's a gift for you. And then he keeps going, because the, God's grace isn't done yet. Look what he says. I mean, just amazing to have that happen for me. But then he goes on, he says, verse 39, and this promise is for you and for your children. God's going to change generations. God is going to restore and redeem the lineage of the people who killed him. That's the heart of our God. He, he will not just transform one person. He will transform generations. He will transform families. He will take the families of his enemies and make them his own children. He will even gift them with the Holy Spirit. He will forgive them. And then, if that wasn't enough, look what it says, it continues on. He says, this is, a, this is a, a, for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all, uh, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is even for people that didn't, weren't even righteous enough to make it to Jerusalem. This is for the people back in your home countries and your hometowns. This is for people who are far away from God, physically, emotionally, spiritually. This is a promise for them that grace is available for everybody and the Holy Spirit as well. You don't have to be some guru. You don't have to spend your entire life sitting on top of a mountain denying yourself to attain some type of spiritual enlightenment so you can have a taste of what the Holy Spirit might do for you. God says, repent, be baptized. You receive his forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit not what we deserve. This is because God loves us, which makes the church fundamentally different than every other organization. We're not here because we're better than other people. We're here because we're forgiven. We're gifted with God's love and grace. And he says, this is not just for you, it's for everybody. And so we have this amazing spirit of grace, which then forms the foundation of this new community. And we get another spirit then for them. It is the spirit of a community. Remember, these are people from all places all around the world. They did hold their faith in Judaism in common, right? They did have that. But I imagine most of them stuck around people who spoke their own language, had their own traditions, things like this. But after they, they received this, um, it says in verse 40 that many of them were, were, uh, were baptized, verse 41. 3,000 actually were added. That's a lot of people coming to faith. That's a new, huge congregation. That's too big to fit up in a room, by the way. And so, what did they do? Well, verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. He makes them into a, a community. This is an amazing thing. Take people all from backgrounds, and they start with this. We are all such sinners that we murdered God together. That's where they start. Instead of being disgusted at one another, it says immediately they start forming a community. And there's three major ways that they have community. First is they had community in doctrine, right? They it says there that they, the first thing they did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and to fellowship. That's an amazing thing. They had to start with, you want to repent, what are you repenting to? I mean, they knew their moral compass was wrong, but how do you know what it's supposed to be? They didn't have the New Testament written yet. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to say, okay, what is this new way? How are we supposed to live? What did Jesus teach? Right? That's, that's what they began to do. They said, we're committed to this. And they met in large groups, right? Because they didn't just immediately start breaking up and going into small little churches. No, they met every day, it says, in the temple courts. Look at 36. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's church. 
They had church service all together as a large group, coming back together. The apostles would teach them the word. They, they could have unity amongst this. But guess what? In a big church, one guy gets to talk because otherwise everybody talking, nobody listens to anything. And so they're like, how does this work out in our life? And so they started meeting together in each other's homes and got to know each other. And they broke bread together is what it said. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's, that's like small groups. That's what they started to do. And so they had this community, this faith and doctrine. They had, they had community and ministry. Do you notice it said there that they sold whatever they had and they gave to whatever, whatever people had need? You know why they did that? Because they cared for one another. It's not they were like, oh, I guess I have to help you. Do you know what happens when you're around other people? You start to know them. And then you start to know other people, you start to like them. And, and you start to care about them. And when they suffer, it makes you hurt. And you want it to stop hurting, so you help them. That's what happens. That's why they started meeting. That's why it's so important that we meet together. And they started doing that. And naturally, as an outflow, they had this ministry where they started caring for one another. And then we read through the rest of this book, that ministry doesn't just stop with them. Then they start caring for the people that are weak amongst them, the widows and the orphans. Right? Those are the believers, and they started caring for them. And then it started to expand even be outside of the church, and they started caring for the widows and the orphans and, and those that were outside of the church that were suffering and the poor and the needy. And this is not something for the, the first world, you know, this, the, um, for the first century world. Do you know this is happening still today, presently? I got to tell you, you talk to like our Kathy, our treasurer, Rhonda, or, or one of our pastors, or whatever. it's amazing the level of, of, of help. The, the, what we call benevolent help that comes through this church every year. That the needs that together we come together collectively and we reach out and we help. Sometimes through ministries, right? Like uh, we have uh, crossroads and things like that. Sometimes it's for individuals in the church. Sometimes it's to meet a need in the community. Sometimes we come together to do this. And even more, we see far more needs that are being met even through our life groups where they care for one another. Or there's a neighbor that one of them knows and there's a group they go and meet a need in the community. It doesn't even have to go through the church. Or they, they decide, hey, we're going to serve, maybe not be money, but maybe it's, it's effort or time or care or compassion or prayer. These things are still happening. Ministry. And when they served together, they started to love each other more. Isn't it true that when you help somebody, all of a sudden you care about them more? Well, they had this community in ministry. They also had community and fellowship. Right? It says they broke bread together in their homes every day. <laughs> They got together, they talked. You know what happens when you have dinner with somebody? Typically, you talk to them, and you get to know them better, and you start to like them better, and they have this fellowship. They took social times, they took, and non-social times. Now, Jesus' prophecy was true, that the world would know that we're truly his followers by our love for one another. And that's what it says here. It says that they met together, and they broke bread with glad hearts, enjoying the favor of all the people. Those are even those that were outside. They said, what you have is beautiful. That's the power of community. It's an amazing thing. So we have three spirits that we've received. The Holy Spirit, right? We've received a spirit of grace. And we received a spirit of community. Let's talk about the, how does that apply with us. And the first thing I want to look at is our life group ministry. You know, our life groups, are, you, we come together and worship, and it's important. Sometimes you need to be here not for you. We're always here for God. That's the first person, but obviously time, other people need to get to know you. You need to know other people. Being here at church allows you to minister to other people, right? That's important, but to go deep is what our life groups are about. See if these three things that our life groups are built on sound familiar. There are three legs that are, that are a part of it. The first one is study, the second one, Bible study, the second one is service, and the third one is fellowship. Our life groups are designed, put together, so that w together we build community through faith and doctrine. We study the Bible together. We say this is what is true. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, right? That's what we do. The second one is service. We, we develop uh, community in ministry. We serve one another. We care for each other, and then we also serve our community in Christ's name, and we grow together in that way. Also, we find fellowship in, well, fellowship. <laughs> By just getting together, having dinner together. That's why our life groups have dinner, because people talk. And plus, who wants to cook? and then have to go out and do something, right? You get together, you eat. It's designed because this is a following the model of the beginning. We meet together here, we worship, and then we go back, and then we build that upon that community together in our life groups. Okay, so we have these three things. How do we apply them into our daily life or, or this week? First thing I understand is that the Holy Spirit, he empowers the church. So practical. The church uh, is the one who who gives us exactly what we need 
at the right time, at the right place, to do exactly what, is, what he wants us to do. See, the church can't grow healthy without the Holy Spirit empowering it. There's a such thing as good church growth and bad church growth. Bad church growth is church growth that's around celebrity, right? It's around personality, right? Because there is no human in this world that can save you. And there is Jesus. Bad church growth is around convenience, where people try to make God fit into their life instead of saying, God, I want to fit into your life that you have for me. Bad church growth is around selfishness, where a church will preach things about uh, prosperity and health and wealth, and if you do these things, God will give you like a vending machine and make your life better. That's not how it works. It's about a bad church growth is, is a church that's growing because it's all about what I can get. That's bad church growth, and we'll destroy lives. We don't want that. The Holy Spirit empowers good church growth. Good church growth is a type of growth that, that starts with grace, that frees people from sin and guilt and shame, that sees lives transformed, that begins love with some other people, right? That, that starts with forgiveness and redemption. It starts with service and, and putting God in the center and focusing outward and saying, how can we serve those people that are suffering because God has taken care of me? Good church growth is empowered by the Holy Spirit because only the Holy Spirit can transform us. You look at how the Holy Spirit started the church. He gave it first. He had the perfect timing, right? It's why as a church, we don't move until God tells us to move. It's why for three years, I've been praying for a men's ministry, a breakfast or something, and I waited until God brought the leader. And this week, God brought a leader, and now we're going to do it. Why? Because God has timing. He gets it. Look at Pentecost. It was the right day. Abundance any other day in the entire calendar could be one better to start the gospel than when people from all over the world who had seen Jesus risen from the dead were there and wondering what it meant. I mean, and it was in Jerusalem. He didn't mess up where he was going to start this ministry. He didn't say go to Capernaum. He said go to Jerusalem. This is where it's going to happen. Now, the apostles had no idea, but God did. The Holy Spirit knows what's up. And he will empower the church and put us in the right place at the right time. But also, look at this, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop halfway. He empowered the church with the perfect gifts of all the gifts he could have given the apostles that day. Could there be a better one than the gift of tongues? Look what he was doing. He'll share the gospel with people in their own home language before they go back so they can share the gospel when they get home. That's amazing. There was not a better gift to have. And that's exactly what he gave. If we want to know what God wants us to do, sometimes we look at the gift. I don't think the apostles had to wonder. They all had these new languages. They weren't just sitting around in the room like speaking French to one another. Hey, well, we, right? Isn't this great? Right? They weren't doing that. They're like, we can speak in other languages. I wonder what God wants us to do. Oh, yeah, there's people from all over the world right outside, right now, beginning the party. Let's tell them what this Messiah is, and we can tell them in their own language. You have a gift, believer, at least one the Holy Spirit has given you. You want to know how he's empowering you, the, the mighty work that he's called you to do. It's the perfect gift at the perfect time in the perfect place. If you want to see what God has for you, look at how he's gifted you. And if you don't know how God has gifted you, then might I suggest that you join Kate McMillan this month as she goes on her Wednesday night cable to help you, you know, kind of break apart and say, this is what my spiritual gifts are. This is how God's gifted me. So you know where he's designed you to serve. The most empowering thing you will ever come. I mean, it's amazing. But the Holy Spirit always gives a perfect gift. And with those two things, He always gives the perfect growth. He draws people to Himself, not to a culture. He doesn't draw Himself to a style of worship. He doesn't draw Himself to a person that preaches nice. He draws Himself to Christ. That's what He does. He draws people to Christ. And He fills them with the Holy Spirit and He transforms them. And the world needs that. And He gifts them with everything that we need to make it happen. That's why I'm not afraid, I'm not discouraged about reaching this community for Jesus. We are perfectly equipped and positioned, but we also have to pray. We'd be praying for this community that God does his work, right, preparing the heart. We'd be praying for ourselves that we would be ready to act. We've got to be in the right place at the right time. And when the time comes, just like the apostles, we've got to get out of the room and go. The Holy Spirit empowers it. We'll empower the church every step of the way. The second thing is the, the spirit of grace empowers evangelism. As we go, look at the grace, look at the message that Peter gave at Pentecost. Peter, who before, earlier on in his life, was like, oh, people don't follow Jesus, torch him. Right? Peter denied Jesus three times. And over those past 40 days, 
Jesus met with him and redeemed him and said, you know what? Uh, that was a, you needed to understand this. Now you need to draw other people, feed my sheep, love me, do it. So when the time came, when the first Christian presentation comes up, when the gospel is preached, Peter is there and he says, let me tell you about what must you do to be saved. It's not about you. Repent, be baptized. He's able to teach grace because he received grace. And that grace, when taught and when, when preached, is powerful. And it set people free from sin and from condemnation, didn't it? If you are in Christ, you have received grace. You have a testimony of grace. You don't stand before God because you're so good. You stand before God because He's so good and He loves you. A church that grows is a church that grows through grace. We tell people, here's where forgiveness is. This is a place not where we put on masks. This is a place we take off the mask. This is the one place that we don't have to pretend we're perfect because we all know we're not. And we love each other anyway because God loves us. We recognize that the Holy Spirit's preparing hearts. The Holy Spirit provides opportunities, but we have to have the courage to be able to share the great, the great forgiveness that we've enjoyed. And it has to be a message of grace. If we go into this world and we tell the world, you're so awful, you're just going to burn things, and then maybe you'll be good enough and you can come join to us, that is not grace, and that is not the gospel. They can be saved, and then we'll get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and here they will hear truth. And as you hear truth, we have opportunity daily to repent. And as we fall down, we encourage one another, and we pick each other up, and we say, we can grow together. God will never forgive, give up on you. He will always forgive you, but he will never give up on you. And so we don't give up on each other. So the spirit of grace empowers evangelism. If we want to see more evangelism, we've got to be graceful. Enjoy that spirit of grace. The so third thing is that the spirit of community empowers discipleship. It wasn't grace that just led them to be saved. It wasn't that, that these people were just baptized. They weren't just set free and was like, woohoo, I can do whatever I want now. No. They, they, what did they do? They started meeting together. And that's where they grew deeper in Christ is where the church and the community grew beautifully. It's, it's coming to church. It's being part of this, focusing together, saying, we are in this together. This is what is true. We hold up the word of God and we say, we trust this. We follow this. We're going to apply this. We're going to begin to obey Christ in all areas of our life, not out of legalism, because it, but because it sets us free. It's a new way of living and a great way of living at that. And together we encourage one another, but also we, we meet each other's homes and we get to know each other. And in this, we become more like Christ because we learn how to forgive other people because all of us are difficult. And we receive love and grace from each other. We have opportunity to serve and minister. God provides opportunity for us to grow deep in faith and community. And that's discipleship. So we grow in doctrine and in ministry and in fellowship. And we become more and more like Jesus. We become disciples of Jesus that make disciples of Jesus, which is kind of what we're about. So... We have these three things, these three points. We recognize these three very powerful spirits of the Holy, that, that God has gifted us with. The Holy Spirit, amazing spirit of grace and spirit of community. How do you apply that in your daily life? This week, how does that make a difference? Well, if you can't just think of something off the top of your head, um, I invite you. I've been praying over these, and I have got some next steps that I would invite you to take with me. So if you take out your connection card on the backside, there's some things that I invite you to join us in. The first one is this. Uh, Maybe you want to memorize Acts 1.8. And, and through this series, we got to know what the mission is. If we don't know what the mission is, we're going to get off mission, aren't we? We're going to get distracted. So know the mission. But as you memorize it this week, think about what it says, particularly in terms of this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What does that mean today and for you? If you're a believer in Christ, how is the Holy Spirit empowering you? Is he setting up opportunities, transforming you from the inside? Are you daily, this rededication, are you saying, I'm sick and tired of being held hostage to these stupid sins, and I'm saying, God, help me, change me. Are you receiving power from the Holy Spirit, or are you trying to do faith on your own steam? This week, I encourage you, memorize this, but think about it. Make it a dedication as you truly do an evaluation of the soul and the heart. Second thing I want to do is, why don't you uh, read John chapters 14 through 16? Jesus told us who the Holy Spirit is and what he's supposed to do, right, what he would be doing and is doing in, this, in these chapters. Why don't you read those? Find out what Jesus told us so we know what to expect the Holy Spirit, so we can ask him and agree with him when he does his work in our life. And you may also uh, 
you may want to just read Acts chapter 2 because we just talked about it. Or how about this? Pray for three. What do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit prepares the soil, right? Evangelism, He's the one who brings it and makes it possible. Well, those people that we are praying for, it's not just in general, they actually have names, they're humans, and you know some of them. So I'm encouraging you to do, if there are three people in your life that you know that don't know the Lord, they were walking distant from Him, would you, ask, would you have the faith enough to begin asking God for their soul, to pray for them? We've developed a tool to help you in this. So it's in the back of your seat in front of you, in that pouch there. It's a little orange card, and it says, who will I invest in, right? And then it's got three names. It's just not long enough for a first name if you want. You can write the names down, and it's a bookmark for a reason, so you can put this in your Bible. So as you, every day you go in, you open your Bible, and then you pray for these three people by name. Say, God, I'm putting them before you. And would you do this for the rest of the series? Or until, it, however long it takes, but just commit to the end of the series. If that's, but say, I'm going to be praying for these people. Ask God to do a work in their heart, that he would convict them of sin and of judgment, of righteousness, that he prepare, that he would then also, if it's you that gets to share the gospel with them, that he would prepare you for it. And if you're not the one, he has somebody else, that God will prepare them for it. Give us the words, the opportunity, and the courage to share the gospel. One of the ways that we remind ourselves of the Holy Spirit in, 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 in uh, empowering the church is we actually invite him to empower the church. And then on the back side of this, you will notice that there is what's called the, the Romans road of salvation. It's what the Bible says about how a person comes to faith. Right? It's a pretty helpful thing. So if you'd wonder, like, how do I, sh- what does the Bible say? How can I help if you get the opportunity to share your faith? This is a great tool for you. So that's there for you. Maybe pray for three. Maybe what you need to do this week instead of any of those is that you just join a life group. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're, you feel like you're a disciple off on your own. Well, you, you're a disciple in community. So come on in. And if you're not, if you want to be part of one of our life groups, uh, let us know. We'll get in contact. We can help you connect with a small group of believers that will encourage you and you can grow deeper in faith together. If there's something different the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, then certainly write that down. Let me pray for you this week. Of course, if you have any prayer requests, this is your opportunity to write those down. If there's another commitment, certainly let us know. And then here in a minute, we're going to have our worship team come up, and they're going to lead us in, in worship, but also one more connection cards with your commitments and prayer requests, um, and drop them in the offering baskets as is passed, along with your tithes and your gifts. All right, so let's pray for these first, and then we will, uh, we will have the, the offering taken. Let's do Father God, thank you for you and you, your love for us. Thank you that you didn't abandon us, but that you've sent yourself the, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. Thank you for empowering the church. Thank you for giving us a spirit of grace. Thank you, Father, that, that you've given us this one amazing community to grow together in. May you bless this church, protect it from the forces on the outside that would like to destroy it. Instead, may this be a place of love and of grace and of truth. Father, I place for be a, a place for those who are broken, who are hurting, who are wounded, that they would come and know that this is a place of healing where they will find you. Father, grow this church, not just numerically, but Father, I pray that you would grow this church, that you would take captives away from the enemy, that you would free people from sin and death, that you would release people from from bondage to, to brokenness, and instead, Father, that we would see lives transformed, that you would grow your church healthy and true. Father, I pray that you would reach the gospel into every nook and cranny in this community, for this promise is not just for us, but for our children and all who are far off. So give us a love even for those who are far off. Father, we pray for the commitments we've made today. Help us to keep them in a way that honors you, that grows us as believers, and that builds your kingdom. And Father, we also pray for our tithes and our gifts and our offerings. Lord, would you may you take these and would you invest them in your kingdom to bring you great glory. We ask all of this in the amazing name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.